This is The Resident Review, a plastic surgery podcast. This is a platform designed for education of plastics hand and training facial surgery trainees from medical student to master surgeon. Our episodes take you through high yield topics along with experts in the field in order to maximize your knowledge and refine your techniques. If you like what you hear, be sure to visit our website, theresidentreview.com for episodes, outlines, resources, and more. And stay tuned after the episode for a brief message from our sponsor. Hi, and welcome back to The Resident Review. It's Tori and Rosie again, finishing up quick hits with uh, the wound healing and tissue expansion episode today. So excited to be talking about this topic. Really awesome. So good. We're going to start by talking about the healing timeline. We'll talk about scars and nutrition as it relates to healing. Talk about dressings and hyperbaric treatment. And then we'll move on to transplant, tissue expansion, and miscellaneous topics. As always. <laughs> One of my favorites. All right. So first and foremost, we'll go through the timeline for healing. This is something that we are often tested on. Mm-hmm. There are three phases of healing. We're going to break it down by the time in weeks. So week one is the inflammatory phase. This is defined by proliferation of fibroblasts, collagen, and glycosaminoglycans. There's an increase in tensile strength that happens by day four, day five. And the incision strength is about 5% of its original strength at the end of week one. And this is going to double weekly. Weeks two to three is the proliferative phase. This is defined by angiogenesis and epithelialization. This is the period of maximum collagen deposition. Contraction also starts to happen at this time from fibroblasts. If there's less dermis or the less dermis that there is, the more contraction there is. And then from three weeks to the one year time point, this is really the remodeling and maturation phase of healing. The type one collagen replaces type three collagen and full strength of that wound is achieved at two to three months. And we are often tested about the incision strength. So just think about week one being 5% and then doubling that weekly until you've gotten about two to three months and you're Mm -hmm. at 100%. In terms of operative procedures in the wound timeline, don't be afraid to do repeat debridements. You wanna debride as many times as necessary to achieve a clean wound. Otherwise you are not gonna be starting ahead on a wound healing journey. With regards to assessing coverage options for the patient, which is something we are often being consulted to do, Mm -hmm. you wanna think about what is the defect and what kind of tissue is needed to cover it. Are they a candidate for systemic or prolonged anesthesia? And then will they require some type of adjuvant adjuvant treatment in that area that may influence coverage, such as radiation Mm -hmm. as a common one? All right, moving on to scarring. So we're often tested on the difference between hypertrophic and keloid scars. So hypertrophic scars are elevated scars, but they stay within their original borders. They're made of parallel bundles of type three collagen, and they have more myofibroblasts and extracellular collagen. They're less likely to recur than keloids. And for treatment, you can use interlesional steroids in small areas or compression garments or excision. This is contrasted with keloids, which grow outside of the original borders of the scar. They have excessive amounts of type one and type three collagen. It's thick, wavy, and randomly oriented. And there is a 
Oh my God. There's a very confusing situation where like the two of the tests, yeah. 20, 2019 and 2020 have conflicting information about what the difference is with regards <laughs> to the ratio of type one to type three collagen. Um, it's very confusing because they literally say the exact opposite in terms of which one is more than the other or which yeah. one is like out of um, or abnormal. So I have like read a couple books that either say like nothing about it. Like they just say it's an abnormal type one to type yeah. three ratio. That's what um, but my understanding was that it was technically more type one than type three. That was my, like from everything that I read mm-hmm. seemed like the most consistent was greater type one to, than type three. So you have like a, a overall increase in that number, the ratio of type one, to type, of three. type one to type three. But just so you guys know, this is like obviously conflicting on multiple exams. So um, just know that there's excessive amounts of both types of collagen and keloids rather than just the type three collagen and hypertrophic scars. And we'll just leave it at that. And we've been tested on the orientation too. Yes. So on that note, keloids have more keratinocytes and fibroblasts and they're mediated by TGF beta. There's a higher incidence of keloids depending on puberty, pregnancy, and genetics, and there's a very high recurrence rate. Predictors of relapse or um, recurrence of keloids include starting radiation over 24 hours after surgery, male gender, younger age, any keloid that is over five centimeters, anything in a high tension area, or anything that requires a skin graft. So relating to that, when you are treating keloids, you want to do radiation therapy within 24 hours of excision. And that was a question on a recent test. Radiation therapy can cause altered pigmentation as can steroids. And you can also do excision with a steroid injection. And this results in about a 15% recurrence rate. You can also do interleutional 5-FU, which is a better standalone treatment because there's less risk of depigmentation that you would have with steroids or radiation therapy. Um, when you don't have hypertrophic scars or keloids, you have normal wound healing. And two of the most important technical factors in wound healing include placing sutures that will not leave permanent suture marks and wound edge eversion. It does not matter if you keep sutured wounds dry or cleaning them immediately. There's no difference in surgical uh, superficial skin infections. And then regenerated skin like skin grafts have many characteristics of normal skin, including capillary loops, root ridges, elastic and collagen fibers as well, but they do not have dermal appendages of hair follicles or sweat glands because those get left behind when you take the graft. Fetal healing is potentially scarless healing. They have higher concentrations of type three collagen and you will see admixal features like hair follicles and sweat glands, unlike normal regenerated skin. Widened scars occurs during the maturation phase. That's three weeks to one year, like Tori talked about earlier. It can be more common in some genetic conditions like Ehlers-Danlos and cutis laxa. And then just FYIs for these two skin conditions, Ehlers-Danlos has joint hypermobility, easy bruising, and skin hyperextensibility. And cutis laxa only has skin hyperextensibility. Scar treatments can include silicone sheeting, which you can begin at about one month after the wound is healed over. You can excise scars, you can try cryotherapy, radiation, massage, or injections of interferons, steroids, or 5-FU. 
Um, we are going to move on a little bit to nutritional evaluation as it's, you know, we often emphasize in our consults, you know, critical for wound healing is also appropriate nutrition to make sure that you have all the kind of foundation things you need to mm -hmm. build new tissue. Mm -hmm. So in terms of supplements, we are tested on this quite a bit. Um, vitamin A reverses delayed healing from steroids. So if you have a patient that's on chronic steroids, you want to optimize their wound healing. Vitamin A has been shown to uh, improve wound healing and it increases epithelialization. Vitamin C is essential for collagen synthesis and specifically collagen cross-linking. Vitamin E stabilizes membranes, but large doses does inhibit healing and can cause dermatitis. Zinc promotes epithelial and fibroblast proliferation. And then protein is obviously very important. Um, we emphasize this a lot in our patients in general, but in post-bariatric patients specifically, they should consume about 60 to 70 grams per day for a month before and after surgery. And that's just because specifically mentioned as these patients have a harder time sort of maintaining all of their um, micronutrients and macronutrients in the setting that they are in post-operatively. Mm -hmm. In terms of diagnostics, you want to have a normal blood sugar, which is somewhere between 70 and 110 in, in an ideal world. Um, an albumin greater than 3.5 is ideal. If it's less than 2.1, we're talking about severe malnutrition. And then a pre-albumin is greater than 15 in an ideal setting and less than five also indicates severe malnutrition. And then in terms of ABIs, so this doesn't really tell you as much about nutrition, but does tell you about how well vascularized these patients are. And obviously you need good blood flow to heal wounds as we become acutely aware uh, in many of our consults. Um, you wanna have an ABI of 0.9 to 1.2 in an ideal world. If it's higher than 1.2, that means that the vessels are calcified. If it's lower than, uh, than 0.9, that likely means there's ongoing ischemia. Less than 0.2, you're talking about a high likelihood of ischemic gangrene. So ABIs, blood yeah. flow, very important, very important. Um, especially for our large <laughs> uh, patients that we get consulted on by the vascular surgery team. Mm -hmm. In terms of types of dressings, we definitely become well-versed in the many options. Experts. One of our favorites, the wound back. Mm -hmm. um, we are actually often tested on how this exactly helps with wound healing. And it works by removing interstitial fluid leading to increased blood flow. Although you must debride wounds before placing a wound back because if you leave necrotic tissue there, it will get infected. I always think about contraindications being anything you wouldn't wanna have trapped in a sealed off environment because you do seal off the wound back um, environment from the rest of the world and it works great as a skin graft bolster. We were tested on that recently as well. Mm -hmm. There are a couple of specific contraindications to wound back therapy. So active acute infections, malignant wounds, any exposed major vessels or organs, and then any unexplored or non-enteric fistulas. Though if it's an enteric explored fistula, that's okay. Go ahead. Which they are very specific about. Mm -hmm. um, in terms of biologic dressings, you can use a bilayered skin substitute. Um, this releases matrix, matrix proteins to make the surrounding skin more proliferative. And then also something like Integra, which encourages neodermis formation. In terms of sutures, we're just going to talk briefly about the time courses of the sutures. If you want to learn more, um, we would recommend kind of reading more about each individual type. But 
Chromic gut is a short-term absorbable suture. It's gone at three weeks. Same with monocryl or biasin, also gone at three weeks. Vicryl is typically lasting around a month. PDS lasts for six weeks. And then proline is a non-absorbable suture. Glue is a good option in smaller tension-free lacerations that are superficial. Um, when it's used with deeper sutures uh, and other closure techniques, it works just as well as superficial sutures. But if it's used alone in a deeper laceration, then it has a higher dehiscence rate, which just makes sense. Yeah. If it's a deep cut, don't glue it back together. It's like your top layer of sutures, essentially. Or plastic surgeons. It's like, don't, yeah. It's like what we make Do our living off of. Do it right. Um, and then packing, which we also do a lot of. Um, you want to have a saline soaked gauze that's changed out about two to three times a day, if possible. Um, there's lots of different options that we'll just briefly go through in terms of other dressings um, like hydrogels, hydrocolloids, foams, alginates. Um, these all wick away metalloproteases and elastase. And these themselves slow wound healing. So um, the dressings help to take those away and help wound turnover. And then they're also more absorptive. So you can change it less than when you're doing just like a general wet to dry. Hydrofibers are highly absorbent. I think about thick fibers that can take up a lot of fluid. You want to use these for moderate to high exudate wounds. And then hydrocolloids, these absorb exudate and form a gel, but they are less absorptive than fibers. So you want to use them for a wound that's producing like mild to moderate exudate. And then a hydrogel, I think about this as being something that's more like jelly, more moist. It, keep, it locks it in. Yeah. Locks and you want to, this has a high water content and it's available in various like sheets or um, kind of spreadable gels and it creates a moist wound environment and you want to use that for dry wounds. Yeah. I think about that in order. So like hydrofibers are the least, or are the, the most absorbative you want them. For the high exiting wounds, hydrocolloids are the middle, and then hydrogels are for dry wounds. Hyperbarics are up next. So the mechanism that hyperbarics works by is by increasing oxygen delivery to improve leukocyte function, and this helps enhance the penetration of antibiotics as well. The indications for hyperbarics include necrotizing infections, diabetic foot ulcers, chronic osteo, and acute thermal burns, and those are the approved indications for hyperbarics. You may use them for other things, but so that's what it's approved for and indicated for. Transplant. So immunosuppression in transplant. The most opportunistic infections occur within one to 12 months following the transplant. That's for infections and transplants. Now talking about um, the types of infections that you can get when you're on immunosuppression. And within one month of starting, you might get a nosocomial infection. Within one year, you'll probably get an opportunistic infection like CMV, EBV, Aspergillus, Nocardia, and pneumocystis. And then over one year after starting your immunosuppression or after transplant, you have a lower risk for infections despite immunosuppression. So anything community acquired is more common. And then tissue expansion is something that we get tested on not infrequently. Um, specifically what is happening in the area that's undergoing expansion. So these areas have increased blood flow, which improves survival for rotational or transposed flaps. They have a thickened epidermis and hyperkeratosis, and this usually resolves after expander removal. 
They have a thinned dermis, which resolves after about two years. And they have thinned muscle mass, but without diminished function. That's something that they've been tested on a couple of times. So overall, I think about it thinning the tissue because it obviously needs to expand. Mm -hmm. So thins the muscle, thins the dermis. And then as a reaction, I think about a thickened epidermis forming over top of it. Um, and then you can have up to permanent, up to 50% permanent loss of adipose tissue as a result of tissue expansion. Various sites um, that have specific locations where you want to place a tissue expander in the scalp, you want to be beneath the galea or the SMAS. In the trunk, it's safest to place the, it's the safest site to place expanders. Um, there's obviously lots of layers there <laughs> to prevent it from getting anywhere you wouldn't want it. And then the lower extremity is the most likely to develop complications from tissue expander placement, which also just makes sense. I feel like just in general, the lower extremity just yeah. develops a lot of complications. You have a lot of like pulling and kind of different tension vectors. And mm -hmm. then you're also like it's sitting and walking yeah. and sounds. All right, miscellaneous, charcuterie. Um, always give a tetanus shot in the ED. Easy question to get right. Tetanus, yeah. always tetanus. Um, for radiation dermatitis, you can give hydrocortisone. When you are looking for osteomyelitis, an MRI is the gold standard for detecting it. Um, when you talk to patients about smoking, the issue um, is with nicotine. This causes peripheral mycovascular vasoconstriction and a dimin diminished inflammatory response. The 2019 exam had conflicting questions that disagreed on whether or not it increases platelet aggregation by enhanced adhesiveness of platelets, but this is something that I have seen in literature as well. Um, and then the new, another new topic is adipose-derived stem cells. These can differentiate into keratinocytes, endothelial cells, and dermal fibroblasts. All the That's same. tissue expansion and wound healing. There it is, folks. All wounds heal. They do. Until they don't. Until they don't. And you need plastic surgery. That's when we come in. <laughs> Do we have some fast facts? We do. We do have fast facts. How could I forget? Don't forget. So, blessed facts. Blessed facts. Um, hypertrophic scars. These are elevated scars within the original border, and they have a higher number of myofibroblasts. Keloids are elevated scars outside of the original border. And then, as we mentioned, debated topic, but. Excessive amounts of type one and type three collagen mm -hmm. will let the experts decide how much of which. For wound backs, the contraindications are acute active infections, malignant wounds, exposed major vessels or organs, and then unexplored non-enteric fistulas. You can use these hydrogels, hydrocolloids, foams, all these various like fancy wound care things. All you really need to know is the way that they work and help is they're wicking away metalloproteinases and elastase, which slow wound healing. And then areas undergoing tissue expansion, again, tested on this a lot, increased blood flow, thickened epidermis with hyperkeratosis, thin dermis, thin muscle without diminished muscle function, loss of up to 50% of the adipose tissue, which is permanent. Mm -hmm. And that's all folks. Oh, wow, amazing episode. Thanks for listening to Wound Healing and Tissue Expansion. 